0: Welcome back for our fourth and final week of discussing this strange book of wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes. For the last several weeks, we've been taking a journey of sorts with this preacher, Kohelet, and observing as he has all the various ways in which our searches for meaning and happiness in life can go awry, how they can be found empty, hollow, vain. We've looked at the vanity of wealth, and we've looked at the vanity of work as a way to find meaning and happiness in life. But it's worth pointing out that what Coalette is doing, what this preacher is doing, is not really unique in his context. Remember, as I said, this book was probably written somewhere around the third century. And at that same time, there was a, a sort of explosion going on in the ancient world in Greek philosophy. By that time, you had different schools of philosophy that had developed, schools like the Platonists and the Aristotelians. You had young schools that were beginning like the Stoics and the Epicureans. And these schools of philosophy were sort of what dominated the ancient world and and most of them were focused on the same question that Coalette was. They were having a debate at the heart of these ancient philosophical schools was a debate over how to attain meaning and happiness in a world of unhappiness. St. Augustine realized this and talks about it in his book, The City of God, in book 19 of The City of God, where he looks at these different philosophies. Here's how he describes what the philosophers were doing. The philosophers have devised a great multitude of different arguments concerning the supreme ends of good and evil. They have devoted the greatest possible attention to this question in their attempt to discover what makes a man happy. Or as Augustine puts it elsewhere in that same part of the city of God, their attempt to create happiness for themselves in the midst of the unhappiness of this life. So these ancient philosophers were doing much the same thing that Coelette was doing, searching for meaning and happiness in a world of unhappiness. One of the best examples of this is the philosopher Aristotle, who comes right after Plato. And Aristotle, in his great work, Nicomachean Ethics, he looks at the fact that there are three primary ways, he says, three primary means that people look to to try to give their life meaning and happiness, and these three ways of life, Aristotle says, are the life of pleasure, the life of political activity, of work, and the life of philosophy. And here's what Aristotle says about the first one of those, the life of pleasure. To judge from the lives that humans lead, most people and people of the most vulgar type seem to identify the good or happiness with pleasure which is the reason why they love the life of enjoyment. Now, like Coelette, Aristotle thinks that this pursuit of pleasure, maybe through wealth or through pleasurable experiences, that ultimately this is vain. It can't really give true, lasting happiness. And he also says that those people who don't turn to a life of pleasure, those people who instead seek meaning and happiness through work, through political activity, through their expending their lives to try to build something great, something lasting, to build a name for themselves, to receive honor and acclaim through their work. Aristotle says that this too disappoints. This too cannot truly bring happiness. So of those three different types of lives, the life of pleasure being one, the life of politics being one, Aristotle says both of those disappoint. The only way to find true meaning... The only way to secure real lasting happiness, he thinks, is through the life dedicated to philosophy, the life of wisdom, the life dedicated to philosophical contemplation. That alone, Aristotle says, brings true happiness. But that, that is where the preacher and Aristotle begin to differ. They both agree that wealth and work cannot bring happiness that we desire in a world of unhappiness. But where, whereas Aristotle places great trust in philosophy and philosophical contemplation, Kohelet says that even wisdom itself ultimately disappoints. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We've talked about the vanity of wealth. We've talked about the vanity of work. And tonight, we're gonna to look at what Coelette has to say about the vanity of wisdom. Now, to talk about the vanity of wisdom in a book of wisdom literature may seem like a very odd thing to do. After all, isn't Ecclesiastes supposed to be giving us wisdom? Isn't that the point of the whole book? How could the author of Ecclesiastes or how could the preacher who's speaking in most of the book, how could he possibly think that wisdom in and of itself is vain? Now, it's true that Ecclesiastes can, and often does, praise wisdom and sees great benefit in it. Look, for example, at what the preacher says in chapter 7, verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. This is the benefit of wisdom, that wisdom gives strength. And then again, something similar in chapter 10. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of the fool consume him. Here we hear something that sounds much like what we encountered in Proverbs, that wisdom is a good, that wisdom is something to be desired. Remember how Proverbs put it, that wisdom is to be treasured more than silver or gold. Ecclesiastes seems to be agreeing with that and saying, yes, there is great benefit in wisdom and it should be sought out. But the preacher also thinks that wisdom has its limits. And sometimes he doesn't speak quite so highly of it. Look, for instance, at what he says in chapter two, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. And then look again in chapter 7. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, here. Instead of hearing the praises of wisdom, we begin to hear the voice of despair, the voice of vanity. Why should you make yourself too wise? Why expend all this energy on the journey to become wise, on the search for wisdom? After all, will not both the wise and the foolish perish? And sometimes do not the wise suffer while the foolish prosper? Kohelet looks out on a world, and he sees that in a world of suffering, in a world of unhappiness, that wisdom cannot finally bring the meaning and happiness that he seeks. How can we reconcile this, though, with what we read in the book of Proverbs, that wisdom brings life and happiness? Well, to understand what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us, to understand the wisdom that the preacher has to offer us, I think that it's very important to look at precisely why he thinks wisdom is vain and what kind of wisdom he's talking about here. Now, already we've seen one reason that Coelette thinks wisdom is vain, and that is death, because even the wise and the foolish will have to die. And so why spend all of your life in this pursuit of something that cannot guarantee you immortality. But there are two more reasons that Kohelet looks out and he thinks wisdom is ultimately vain. And The first of those reasons is that wisdom is inaccessible. Wisdom is elusive. Even for those who seek it, wisdom seems impossible to find. The second reason is that the wise, those who have wisdom, Even they are corruptible. Even they are fallible. Even they can't really trust their own wisdom sometimes. Let's look at these two in turn. First, I want to look at what he says about wisdom being inaccessible. And here's what he says in chapter 7. And remember, at this point, he's gone through most of his sort of journey that he started off in chapter 1, where he has sought through wisdom, through observation, through understanding to come to understand the world and what brings happiness. And here, look what he says in chapter 7. All this, all of this journey, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? This seems like a very odd comment for the preacher to make this far in his journey. How can he say that by wisdom, he has searched all these things out, and yet that wisdom seems far from him, that it's inaccessible? What's going on here? Well, to understand that, we need to think about what the preacher means when he talks about wisdom. Does he mean the same thing that the book of Proverbs does when he says that all of these things he has tested by wisdom? Is this the same wisdom that begins in the fear of the Lord? The answer to that question is no. Remember what I said in chapter one, or in our first week, I mean, of studying the book of Ecclesiastes, how I drew attention to this phrase, under the sun, that occurs 30 different times throughout this book how it signals something about Kohelet, the preacher, his method in going about gaining wisdom. This preacher's wisdom, when he says, all of this I have tested by wisdom, it's not based on the fear of the Lord. It's not based on looking to the revelation of God. It's based on his own independent observations his own independent reasoning. It's based on him looking out and seeing what he can see under the sun and drawing his own conclusions. And in that way, what Coalette's doing is actually very similar to the Greek philosophers. The Jewish scholar Michael Fox, who's done a lot of study on wisdom literature and Ecclesiastes in particular, he draws attention to this and how Coalette, his method of gaining wisdom and knowledge is so similar to Greek philosophy. And here's what Michael Fox says. We need not suppose that the author has read Greek philosophy or even heard about its particulars. He does, however, share the fundamental tenet of Greek philosophy, the autonomy of individual reason. This is the belief that the individual can and should proceed toward truth by means of his own power's of perception and reason." The preacher has proceeded toward truth by means of his own power and reason. He's sought to discover happiness and the meaning of life through his own independent, autonomous reason and observation. And it's this, this method, when he says, I have tested by wisdom. It's this independent, autonomous way of going about things that has not yielded for him the true wisdom or happiness or meaning that he has been seeking for. And therefore, in the long run, he's found wisdom, the true meaning of life to be inaccessible for him. As long as he's gone about his pursuit under the sun, he cannot find it out. So that's one problem with wisdom. That's one reason that the preacher finds it to be vain. And the second reason, is not just that wisdom is inaccessible, but that even those who become wise, the wise themselves, are corruptible. Look what he says in chapter 7, verse 7. Surely, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. And then look again what he says later in the chapter. Surely, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So Colette, he looks out and he not only sees a world that is opaque to him, difficult to understand, difficult to discover the true meaning, inaccessible. He also looks out And he sees a world where even those who are wise are corruptible, those who can be corrupted by bribes, those whose hearts betray them. And the pursuit of wisdom, then, is vain because the wise are prone to failure and to corruption. In Christian theology, this has often been described as the noetic effects of the fall or the noetic effects of sin, that sin has affected not only our hearts, but even our minds, and that sin has distorted the ways in which we think. And you can continue to see this today. Some of you probably participated in our summer book study where we read Alan Jacobs' book, How to Think. And in that book, Alan Jacobs, he agrees in many ways with the preacher. He agrees that our thinking, our ways of thinking are often corrupted and faulty, that they can be corrupted by emotional responses, and that many times our ways of thinking are really much more due to unconscious prejudices or to tribal identities and groups that we belong to than they are through real trustworthy thinking. And this happens even for those who are wise or intelligent. So, what then does this have to teach us today? This lesson about the vanity of wisdom, that wisdom is inaccessible, and that even the wise are corruptible. Well, you might think this is very different than the world we live in today. We're not like those ancient Greeks. None of us are like Aristotle, going around thinking that we can provide real meaning and happiness to our life if we just dedicate ourselves to philosophy or philosophical contemplation. But I would actually suggest that this is not just an ancient problem, that we moderns, we too, put significant trust and put a lot of hope in our own wisdom and powers of reasoning. Sure, we don't look to philosophy necessarily to give answers to the questions of happiness, but we do think that by the powers of our own reason and creativity, that we can achieve happiness, that we can build some sort of utopia. And you could see this if you look back at the people who are really responsible for creating the way that we think in the modern world. Take, for instance, two famous philosophers uh, who were, and scientists, who kind of created the modern way of thinking. The Englishman Francis Bacon who's often credited with being the father of empiricism and the scientific method. Look at what he has to say about the power of reason. Now, human understanding is emancipated and come, as it were, of age. Whence there cannot but follow an improvement in man's estate and an enlargement of his power over nature. This new human understanding... Bacon thinks, that is brought about, brought about through the scientific method, through everything that we can learn from it. This brings about an improvement in our estates. This is what will bring us happiness. This will, is what will give us power over nature. And look at his contemporary, the Frenchman, the philosopher René Descartes, who if Bacon is responsible for credit being credited with the modern science, Descartes is the one who is responsible for being credited with modern rationalism. Now, Look what Descartes says about the power of knowledge and reason. By knowing the force and actions of fire, water, air, the stars and the heavens, all these things we can discover through our observations. We could employ them to all the usages for which they are suitable and thus make ourselves, as it were, masters and possessors of nature. Now, Bacon and Descartes were themselves both Christians. Francis Bacon was a devout Anglican and Rene Descartes was Catholic. But their twin philosophies, Bacon's empiricism, looking to scientific method and observation and testing, and Rene Descartes' kind of skeptical rationalism, the effect of their methods was to make wisdom in the modern world to make that we the way that we think autonomous freed from god freed from the fear of the lord the need for revelation to put to make ourselves put trust in our own knowledge and power of our knowledge as both of them say it's through knowledge through our own reason and our own abilities, that we will be able to achieve mastery over nature, that we will be able to finally achieve happiness in a world of unhappiness. And that attitude, I think, remains with us today, regardless of whether or not we know anything about Bacon or Descartes or read their philosophies. This is an attitude that we live with. We live with this kind of unerring confidence these days, that. Reason, science, the data we can gather and graph, the technology that we can create, and the innovations that we can make through our reason. That is these things that will provide all the answers that we need to whatever ails us. And that is these things that will allow us to achieve our goals. And we equate wisdom, oftentimes, with scientific authorities, with economic projections, This tendency to look to the power of our own reason, the power that gives us to control society and to try to bring about happiness in our lives. These things are good, but as Craig Gay, who came to Christ Church, as he notes in one of his books, it also starts to lend our lives the feeling of a kind of practical atheism. Because even if we do believe in God, the way that we go about most of our life, the way that we go about trying to secure meaning and happiness is to depend on ourselves, on our own reason and ability, to trust in our own knowledge, to trust in our own wisdom. And therefore, that while we may believe in God, we live as if he is not really terribly relevant to our everyday lives. And I'm not just talking about the way that we live together as a society. It's also the way that we go about making decisions in daily lives. When we face questions like, well, how should I spend my money? Or what are the right choices for my child's education? Or what should I do with the time that I have in my retirement? These are the kind of questions that confront us every day. And all of these questions engage this more fundamental question of what gives us true meaning? and true happiness? What is the good life? It's these same questions that Coalette, the preacher, is trying to explore. To ask these kind of questions is to ask, where is wisdom? What is true happiness? And our tendency is to do exactly what the preacher did, what Kohelet did, to trust in the power of our own reasoning and observations, to Trust in what we can observe under the sun. And that's why we need to read this book, because we need to learn the lesson that Ecclesiastes teaches us, that the preacher had to learn through his own experience. We need to learn the lesson of humility. There's a great expression of humility in Proverbs chapter 3, the humility that characterizes true wisdom. Listen to what Proverbs says, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord. This, Proverbs told us, this is the beginning of wisdom. And remember, as I said back when we first started this course together, when we were looking at Proverbs, that to fear the Lord means, exactly as Proverbs 3 says, to not trust in yourself, to not lean on your own understanding, which is exactly what the preacher has been doing for most of the book of Ecclesiastes and has found vain. In that first week when we were talking about wisdom, I I quoted the theologian Karl Barth in describing what the fear of the Lord means. And I want to return to that quote again remind you of it. Here's what Bart says. He who does not fear the Lord betrays himself by his insistence that he needs no counsel because he is his own counsel. On the other hand, Bart says, he who fears the Lord stretches out his hands, asking for discernment and understanding, for wisdom And thereby for the art of living which he does not yet possess he is ready to receive to accept the gift i think that that's a great summary in many ways of what the book of ecclesiastes is trying to teach us it's trying to teach us that we go awry when we think that we need no counsel when we think that we have already attained wisdom, when we think that we can trust in our own independent reason and observation. But this wisdom, wisdom of that kind, pursued by ourselves, that kind of wisdom is inaccessible. It doesn't really yield a true understanding of the meaning of life and of where happiness lies. And our wisdom is corruptible. So this is why in the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes, after the preacher has finished all that he has said, that other voice, that voice of the narrator returns. And what does the narrator say? What is the final comment that he wants to make after this long search that has exposed the vanity of wealth and the vanity of work and even the vanity of a wisdom, the kind of wisdom that puts our trust in ourselves? Here's what the narrator says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is exactly where we should end in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, this very strange book of wisdom, this book that teaches us precisely by critiquing a lot of the things that we look to in life for meaning or for happiness. This book that teaches us the vanity of a pursuit of meaning and happiness that is detached from God, that's independent, in a life that trusts in ourselves. This journey for the preacher, where he tries in vain to find meaning and happiness without God, this journey ends with the comment of the narrator, all has been said, in the end, fear the Lord. And so Ecclesiastes ends where Proverbs begins, with the fear of the Lord, with the understanding that we cannot trust on ourselves, that we should not lean on our own understanding, that we should fear the Lord. And then if we want to have true meaning and true happiness in life, it begins with a posture of knowing that we must receive wisdom from above. It's easy to read or study the book of Ecclesiastes and come away with a sense of despair. But I hope that has not been your experience because the purpose of Ecclesiastes is not to make us a people of despair, but is in fact to make us a people who are wise, a people who understand our own tendencies to fail, our own fallibilities, a people who look to the Lord, a people who recognize our own limitations, and begin our life by fearing the Lord, by recognizing our dependency and our need for Him.